To say that we're living in unexpected times is really an understatement. All of us are experiencing things that we've never experienced before with this coronavirus. And unexpectedly, we find ourselves in places where we never thought we would find. Matter of fact, I find myself today sitting at a table speaking to you. And if any of you knows me, you know that it's hard for me to sit still when I speak the Word of God or when I teach. But the things that we're experiencing today are not only the unexpected events that have been so in our lives. We have, we have experienced this all of our life, haven't we? I remember several years ago when our family and I were going on vacation, I took it upon myself to schedule the first hotel night on our week-long vacation. I decided that I would find an inexpensive hotel that would serve our purposes. Now, let me translate that for you. I was looking for a very cheap hotel with all of the amenities of a five-star resort. And so I began looking online through Expedia.com, and I, I found a place that wasn't too bad in the city, and, and I found a hotel that didn't look too bad. But my kids were young, and so one of the things that I wanted to make sure we had was a good swimming pool. So as I began to look at this site, I found this, this hotel with a wonderful picture of a swimming pool. And, and this is what the swimming pool looked like. It was something like this. And so it was very exciting for us and exciting for the kids that we would find ourselves in this kind of place on the first night of our vacation. So I booked it. $69 a night. That's right. I got a wonderful deal on this hotel. And so we loaded up the car, we made our way to the first night of our um, vacation, and as we got there, it really wasn't in a good section of town. In fact, it was in a bad section of town. The hotel wasn't very clean, and of all the things, the swimming pool looked like this. It was an absolute shock. It was unexpected on our, 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 our plans, and it was disgusting. And as the kids and I were shocked, my wife was not shocked at all by this. Matter of fact, she kind of knew that this would take place. So I, I wanted to save face among my kids and my wife, so I called Expedia.com. I said, listen, this is horrible. This is false advertisement. I booked this hotel based upon the pictures, and it looks nothing like it. In other words, I was trying to save face of booking a cheap hotel <laughs> at a crack house rate. But my wife fortunately, came through for us. She got online. She found a hotel, a brand new Sheraton at an introductory price for $89 a night. It was beautiful. It was new. It was clean. It had breakfast, and the swimming pool was outstanding. And my kids, to this day, have forbid me from ever booking a hotel on any kind of family outing that we will ever have. Now, all of us have experienced unexpected events in our lives, and, and, and we experience this every day. Matter of fact, you can remember the days when we were able to go to a restaurant with our family and eat with other people, and you would get there, and you would open up the menu, and you would see something like this. On this side, you would see the picture of the burger that they're wanting to sell, right? This burger here took four hours to make, and it took 20 people to make this hamburger, now, it took four hours and 20 people because there was a lighting team that had to be set up for it. There was a, a, a food fashionita that came along and designed this burger. There was a director that uh, directed the shots for this burger. There was a person who edited the picture. And in all four hours and 20 people to make this shot, 
Now, the burger on the right is what we end up getting. It takes three minutes to make this burger and two highly skilled hamburger engineers. Most of us expect this, but we may get the unexpected. Or have you ever decided to buy toys for your kids and you see something on a box and you buy it and it looks like this? A kid playing soccer with a full-size soccer ball only to receive what's on the right side of the screen, something totally unexpected. As a matter of fact, most of us, if not all of us, have entered into 2020 with great expectations. Many of us believed that we would enter into this new year and we would have some wonderful accomplishments. Maybe some of you thought that you were going to enter into 2020 and you would be able to retire because, man, the stocks were on the rise and things were looking good. Or some of you entered into 2020 hoping for that job promotion because the economy was outstanding. Maybe some of you have entered into 2020 thinking this is going to be the year that we get to celebrate our wedding or we get to celebrate graduation, and there will be hundreds of people there. But we are unexpected in what we have met this year. We have seen that our stocks have plummeted. We've seen that our jobs are ending. We've seen that those weddings and those great times of celebration can now include only 10 people. And we are experiencing the unexpected. And we're about to enter into one of the greatest times of celebration for Christianity, Easter the celebration of the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And most all of us who are watching this cannot remember a time when we did not celebrate Easter with thousands of people in a packed room. But this year, we're going to celebrate in an unexpected way, aren't we? We're going to be in our homes, in the privacy of our homes. We're going to be with our families. We're going to be watching Easter from a TV, a computer screen, maybe an iPad, or maybe even your telephone, or some other device, but it will be unexpected. We're beginning a new series today, and that series is called Unexpected. We're going to be looking at the unexpected things that took place during Easter, because after all, Easter itself was unexpected. And there was the arrival of an unexpected king, the arrival of an unexpected savior. And Easter brought an unexpected change to humanity. Today, as we begin, we want to begin where Jesus enters Jerusalem on the last week of his life. So if you have your Bibles, you have your devices, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. And we'll read through verse 11. And as we unpack these verses, and as you're turning there, let me just set the stage for you. The people of Israel were living in an unexpected time. They were expecting at any moment the arrival of the Messiah. In Jerusalem around 33 AD, the Romans had occupied Israel for almost 90 years. The tensions were high. The Jewish people anticipated that the Messiah would come and he would be the one who would deliver them from the tyranny of Rome. The Romans anticipated that the Messiah would come and he would be the one who would lead an insurrection and be a tyrant of Rome. The Romans were nervous and at the sound of Messiah, they would quickly act. The Jewish leaders were nervous as well because they enjoyed their position with the people and they enjoyed their place among the Romans. The people were filled with anticipation as they waited 
for the arrival of the promised one, the Son of God. Jesus has been serving now in this area for about three years. He is well-known. He is popular. He has healed the sick. He's cast out demons. He is the one who, who set them free from infirmities. He even raised the dead. He fed them. He loved them. He was well-known. And Jesus had just completed one of his greatest miracles of all, the raising of his dear friend Lazarus from the dead. In fact, people were coming to Bethany to see Lazarus, to see Jesus. The religious leaders wanted Jesus dead, but they also wanted Lazarus dead as well because he was exhibit A on the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. It is Passover week. Jerusalem is crowded. Almost two million people are there to celebrate. And Jesus is about to enter into Jerusalem. This is the last week of his life known as Passion Week. We begin in chapter 21, verse 1. And we'll read verses 1 through 3. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a coat with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now we don't know if Jesus had already made an arrangement with someone who owned the donkey and the coat or if this was some supernatural knowledge that Jesus had about those existing and supernatural revelation to the owner of the cult who had released them, we don't know that. But we know this, that it was important for Jesus to get that donkey and the cult. Now, in Matthew's gospel, he says there's a donkey and a cult. The other three gospels only record the cult. But it makes sense to bring the donkey and the cult because a cult would not leave its mother. So by bringing its mother ahead is an incentive for the coat to follow. Now, why is it so important for there to be a coat that Jesus would enter Jerusalem on? Well, it's because of verses 4 and 5. Here we find a fulfillment of prophecy. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, who is Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a beast of burden. We find that in Zechariah 9.9, he makes this prophecy 500 years before Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And this prophecy is that he would ride on the coat on a, a beast of burden. And so the disciples nor the people even recognize what is happening. But Jesus knows he's fulfilling prophecy. And so the disciples do what he says in verses 6 and 7. The disciples went and they did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the coat and they put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Now they did exactly what he said. Now according to this passage, they had no difficulty. In Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, they run to individuals who ask them about why they're taking the coat. And they respond as Jesus had said. And in all cases, they released it and allowed them to bring him. They bring the donkey and the coat to Jesus. They laid their garments as saddles on each of them, not knowing which one Jesus would ride. And Jesus chooses the coat, and he sits on the garments on the coat. 
Now, this is most unexpected for the disciples. And here's why. In all of the ministry of Jesus, he has never publicly put himself out in front of the people. When he healed people, he did it secretly. He did it quietly. And he would tell people not to tell anyone. Jesus did not want to display his miracles and his power and his authority at that point. But as he's coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he puts himself out in open display among all of the people. And they see him. Now, this is only going to be the second time that Jesus is going to be in open display. When he begins Passion Week on this day and when he ends Passion Week on the cross. But Jesus puts himself out so people can see him. And as he's coming, riding on the colt, the throngs of people are gathering around him. There were two million people approximately in Jerusalem. But around him, and as he's entering into Jerusalem, there's probably a hundred to 200,000 people in this crowd. And as he's making his way, the people began to do two things that are very significant. We find in verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Why would they do this? The laying down of garments and the laying down of palm branches was symbolic of a king of a monarch entering into the city. And they recognized him as the king. They took off their garments. They laid them down. They took the palm branches that they cut from the fields and they laid at the feet of Jesus as he's riding on this donkey, this coat. And there are 100,000, 200,000 people around doing this as he's making his way. You could see the crescendo of this activity. Now, when they do these things, it's symbolic that they are submitting to the lordship of a king by laying their coats their garments and palm branches is to say that we lay ourselves at your feet and you walk over us if need be. It is a sign of absolute submission and complete surrender. As Jesus is riding this donkey, all of these people are demonstrating all of this submission to him as king. But they do something else. Notice in verse 9, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They are shouting phrases that depict the Messiah. As we look and hear this, they shout Hosanna. The word Hosanna means save now. They shout, Son of David. Son of David speaks to the fact that he is the Messiah to take the throne of David. They call him, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is symbolic of the Son of Man or the Son of God. Hosanna in the highest. The highest praise belongs to him. And we find in Luke's gospel, they call him the King of Israel. You can hear the crescendo building a hundred, two hundred thousand people shouting at the top of their lungs. And all of Jerusalem is hearing this. You can hear this emotional outburst of praise and adoration pouring over the countryside. And you have to wonder, what is Jesus thinking? He's never put himself out publicly before, but he's riding on this coat And he's hearing the crescendo of praise and adoration. What's going through his mind? Is he thinking, yeah, that's right. That's who I am. Is he thinking, 
It's about time they recognize me. Now, though this passage doesn't tell us, in Luke's gospel, chapter 19, verse 41, we find what Jesus is thinking. And here's what Luke says. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. Why? In all of this praise and adoration, why does Jesus weep? Well, the first thing we know is this word weep is the strongest word used in the Greek to display grief and mourning. There's no other word in Greek that is as strong as that one. It is not just the sharing of a tear. It is not just a whimper. It is not a moan. But this word depicts a heavy crying. The kind of weeping where the entire body shakes and quivers. It's an uncontrollable emotional outburst of grief and sorrow. In no other passage do we find that Jesus wept so heavily. Why? Well, Luke tells us it's because they could not see the things that God was doing. And I believe that Jesus wept not only because of that, but because he knew the hearts of people. He knew what they were thinking. The very people who are praising him with words of adoration and accepting him as the king are going to be the same people five days later who are going to be cursing him with words of condemnation and rejecting him as king. Jesus knew what was in the hearts of these people. And there are probably at least four reasons why the Lord Jesus wept. Let me give you some of those. Number one, the people had wrong perspectives about his kingship. You see, these people were thinking wrongly about who he is. They were looking at an unexpected king, one that was different than who Jesus would be. You see, they wanted a king who would come in and throw off the controls of Rome. They wanted a king who would give them freedom. They wanted a king who would be a functional king, a king that would make their lives happy, make their lives successful, make their lives meaningful. This king would come to serve them. They had a wrong perspective of his kingship. But let me tell you a second reason. The people had a weak promises of surrender. Oh, they threw their garments down. They threw the palm branches down. They were declaring, you can walk over us if need be. But their commitments to surrender and, and absolute submission were temporary. You see, they didn't want a king that would have such great demand on them. They didn't want a king who would cause them to change their lifestyles. They didn't want a king who would cause them to adjust every moment of their life to the kingship of this king. No, they had very weak promises. But thirdly, the people had worthless praise. It was empty. These people offered up praise that did not reflect authenticity in their hearts. You see, these people had worthless praise. Oh, yeah, they shouted, Hosanna. That means save now. They shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they wanted a king that would accept just platitudes. They wanted ritual. They didn't want a relationship. They wanted lip service. They didn't want a lifestyle change. And so their praise was empty. But here's the fourth reason. The people were without personal intimacy. 
Perhaps this is the worst. Without personal intimacy. In other words, they didn't know Jesus. He had been with them for three years. He had healed their sick. He had fed them. He had taught them. He had cast out demons. Jesus had been with them for three years. He even raised the dead. And yet they didn't know him. How do we know they didn't know him? Because of verses 10 and 11. Here's what Matthew records. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. He had been with them for three years, and they don't know who he is. Now, this is almost comical. You see that the people are gathered in this throne. You see this emotional frenzy taking place. You hear the praise, the adoration, and people are joining in saying, yeah, Hosanna in the highest, yeah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, yes, yes. Hosanna in the highest. Now, now, now who, who is this we're worshiping? Who is this we're praising? Well, you know, the, the guy from Nazareth, the prophet, from Galilee. They didn't know him. You see, at best, they saw him as a prophet. At worst, they only saw him as a man. And there was no intimacy. See, the reality is this. Not much has changed in 2,000 years, is it? People still want a king that fits their lifestyles. People are still looking for a functional king. The kind of king that I want. The kind of king that I can control. The kind of king that I rule. You see, during these days in this crisis with the coronavirus, many people are concerned. Their lives have been changed. For many people, they're coming to realize the reality of death. We're beginning to see our own mortal state and we're beginning to understand that there is an eternity before us. As a result, many people have come to faith in Jesus Christ during these days. Many people have embraced this King. And many of them, their lives have genuinely been saved. But I want to tell you, in a crisis like this, there are a lot of people who are looking for a functional king. A lot of people are looking for the kind of Jesus that can just help them through this. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll consider Jesus. I, I want Jesus to help me with my job. I want Jesus to protect my family. I want Jesus to take care of my investments for retirement. I want Jesus to keep us safe. You see, I want Jesus to take care of my happiness, my comfort, and my convenience. And the moment that Jesus doesn't fulfill their expectations or the moment that we get past this crisis, Jesus is no longer needed. Because the bottom line is I've never intended to fully submit myself to a king who would demand my total loyalty. And there are many people who see Jesus as a functional king. But believer, listen. 
you and I can find ourselves in a place where we unintentionally set Jesus up as a functional king and not the kind of king that he is. You see, we can do this easily. We can have wrong perspectives of the kind of king he is and we want him to serve us rather than we serve him and we make him a functional king. Or you and I can have weak promises. Or we make those commitments to him, but we pull them back. And we forget that he wants our absolute loyalty. We lose sight of those core convictions of our lives. We no longer study as we need to, his word. We no longer grow as disciples as we need to. We're no longer worshiping him or we're no longer seeking him in prayer. We're no longer serving one another. We're no longer living as missionaries in our community. And and as far as generosity goes, we can't afford that now. And so we have a functional king who just get us through this rather than fulfill the promises and the convictions of our lives. Believers, if we're not careful, we can unintentionally give him worthless praise. That's where we mouth platitudes that our hearts don't mean. That's where we move from a relationship to a ritualistic religion. It's where we look for an external praise, but not an inward change of authentic worship. And then the worst is that we can lose sight of an intimate relationship with him. As a functional king, we want him to keep his distance. And our intimacy begins to wane because we're so consumed with the things around us. You see, Jesus does not want us to have a functional king. He wants us to have the real thing. And many times he is the unexpected king among us. So what does the Bible say about the kind of kingship Jesus has? What does the Bible say about the kingship of the Lord Jesus? Well, let me remind you of this. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, he didn't come on a stallion. He came on a donkey. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, he didn't come with an entourage of nobility. He came with a ragtag band of uneducated disciples. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, he didn't come with a string of captives demonstrating his military effectiveness. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, he didn't come to live in a palace to be served. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. When we look through the pages of Scripture, we find several pictures of his kingship, both Old Testament and New Testament. When we look through the pages of Scripture, we come to understand that Scripture interprets Scripture, both in Old Testament and New Testament, and that Jesus' role as the Messiah was the prophet, the priest, and the king. And when we look through the pages of Scripture and we see king attached to God's name, it is always in reference to the Messiah, Jesus, the unexpected king. So what kind of king is he to be? Let me show you the kingship of Jesus and the kind of king that he is to us who follow him. Number one, Jesus is the king of heaven. He is the king of heaven. Daniel captures this picture beautifully in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. 
Nebuchadnezzar is giving a personal testimony of how God impacted his life. Nebuchadnezzar was the one who saw the fourth one in the fire. The one who looked like the son of God. And Nebuchadnezzar, praising him, calls him this. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Jesus is the king of heaven. And as the king of heaven, he is the sovereign king. He's the one over every power imaginable. He is the one who is omnipotent. He is the one who spoke the universe into being with a single word. He is the one to whom no one can compare. He is greater than every man, every angel, every infirmity, every virus that you can imagine. And as he spoke the universe into being with a single word, he can speak the infirmities and the cancer and the viruses of our lives away in a single breath. He is our unexpected King of heaven. But not only is He the King of heaven, we find that Paul tells us secondly that Jesus is the King of the ages. Paul says to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When he says he's the King of the ages, He's talking about a king who has seen it all. A king who has experienced it all. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He has known the end from the very beginning. There's nothing Jesus does not know. He has absolute wisdom in every circumstance. He has seen every failing of humanity through the ages. He has seen every infirmity that has impacted man. He has seen every plague and every virus. And he knows every one of them intimately. How they function and how they are eradicated. He's the king of the ages. And so as the king of the ages, he is completely wise and he is the one who gives wisdom to humanity in all the areas of our lives but he's not only king of heaven he's not only king of the ages he is also the king of righteousness the writer of hebrews speaks of melchizedek as a type of christ and he uses this example to speak of the kingship of jesus in chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 2, he says, He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. Jesus is not only a righteous king, he's the king that brings righteousness. No other king could bring the righteousness to humanity. No other king can make an unrighteous person righteous. Only Jesus has the ability to do that. And as the king of righteous, he is an unexpected king because this king went to the cross on your behalf and my behalf. He's the one that brings righteousness to us who are unrighteous. On the cross, he took our place in death. On the cross, he took our penalty. On the cross, he took the wrath of God. On the cross, he took our sin so that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ. And this king unexpectedly takes our place and gives us his very righteousness. You see, only in that way can we be righteous with God. 
Only in that way can we be reconciled to a holy God. And as the king of righteousness, he seeks to bring righteousness to unrighteous humanity. But there's a third, fourth thing he is. He's the king of peace. Again, in that same passage, speaking of Jesus, and then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. The two things that humanity looks for, righteousness and peace, one follows the other. But you can never have peace apart from righteousness. Yet in humanity, that's where we begin. We want to find peace for our souls, but we're unwilling to reconcile to a holy God. But it's only as you and I receive the reconciliation through Christ that we can even experience peace. Once a person admits their sin, once a person confesses Christ as Savior and Lord, once a person submits their life to Him and repents of their sinfulness, at that point, there's peace. Paul puts it this way. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The unexpected king is the king of peace. And during this time, many people are looking for peace in their life. It will not come apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. He brings peace. But fifthly, Jesus is the king of glory. He is the king of glory. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And when we see that phrase, king of glory, we're speaking about one who is adored. We're speaking about one who has a name above all names. We're speaking about one who has an only name whereby men must be saved. And in him, there is glory. But lastly, Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we see all through the pages of Scripture, through the book of Revelation, this phrase used over and over. It's probably the most popular phrase that you and I know about His kingship, that He is King of kings, He is Lord of lords. What does that mean? That means this, there is no one above Him. Everyone is below Him. Every spirit, every demon, Every leader of the world, every tyrant, every government, every circumstance, every disease, he is king above. He's an unexpected king. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. And there's no one with whom anyone can compare. That's our king. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. He's our king. Our king. He's an unexpected king. And those of us who worship him in that way have unexpected power and unexpected freedom. If we take all those and we roll those together, what does it sound like? As our king, he is enduringly strong. He is entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He is impurely powerful. He is impartially merciful. He's God's son. 
He's the sinner savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He is unique. He is unparalleled. He is unprecedented. He is the unexpected king. He's the king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of legislatures. He's the overseer of overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the princes, prince of princes. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is our unexpected king. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. He is our unexpected king. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. The heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. He is our unexpected king. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. The grave couldn't hold him. That is our unexpected king. He has always been, and he always will be. He had no predecessor, and he will have no successor. There's nobody before him, and there'll be no one after him. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. He is the king. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And how long is that? Forever and ever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all of the forevers, forever and amen. That is our unexpected king. Believer, that is your king. Don't settle with the functional king that the world has to offer. Don't settle with the functional king that your flesh desires. Settle with the king, the unexpected king, the king of heaven, the king of the ages, the king of righteousness and peace and glory and over every king and every Lord. That is your king. Some of you are watching this. He is not your king. You have been seeking a king of your own making. And yet the Lord Jesus today is telling you what kind of king he is. You see, he came for you. He's the only king who died for his subjects. He's the only king who gave them his righteousness. He's the only king that can take away the wrath of God. He's the only king that can bring you forgiveness. He's the only king that can restore your life. He's the only king that can make you one of his subjects. You see, you may be listening to this today. And you're coming into this time of Easter and celebration. And Jesus wants you to know that he died for you. 
that he rose from the grave on Easter Sunday. And he is alive today. And he knows you intimately and his desires that you would know him. He is calling to you to throw your garments at his feet and to surrender everything to him. He is calling you to announce with your lips that you are a sinner and that he is king and for you to repent and surrender your life to him. He is calling for you today to take up the very cross that he carried for you and that you would follow him in obedience all the days of your life. He's the only one who knows you. The only one who has died for you. The only one who rose for you. The only one who is seated at the right hand of the Father and even now is calling to you. He's an unexpected king. But he is the king of all kings. And his desire is to be the king of our hearts. Would you, during this day, surrender to this king? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our unexpected king. We thank you, Father, for his obedience to you. And now we pray that you would impact our hearts and our lives with the truth of what we have heard. For the believer, Father, that during these days we will walk in awe of our King. And for those who are without Christ, they would come to surrender everything to their King. We pray these things in Jesus' name.